Brooklyn's Radio. Loving events in Surrey. A very good morning to you. It is Sunday the 12th of September and I'm here in Brooklyn's Museum and we have come for a very special day. It's a tribute to one of Britain's greatest Formula One drivers, Sir Sterling Moss. We've got a bunch of cars here that he's been driving and racing and we're going to be talking to a few people will be sharing their memories of him with us and i've got baz with me who's going to tell us a bit more now yeah hi hugh i mean the setting first of all absolutely amazing here over at the museum the sun is shining which is fabulous because we've got the weather uh, which is great and sterling's such a fascinating motor racing character um, his history really i mean his, his mum and dad were both in motor racing as well which is quite a surprise but they actually had a view that he shouldn't follow in dad's footsteps so they wanted him to be a dentist of all things uh, but he had a different view in life so by 1948 Uh, he commenced racing actually he raced 84 different cars in 15 different seasons of racing and um, history had it that um, he was actually offered a a drive by Enzo Ferrari for Ferrari uh, and actually went over there uh, thinking that he'd got the drive by the time he turns up Enzo and he was known for this decided that he'd change his mind and uh, so Sterling did not get the drive that he expected in Ferrari, which meant from that moment on, I think it really fueled his passion to, to want to beat the red car, uh, which was fascinating. So you know, when he got into his heyday driving for Mercedes, uh, absolutely fascinating, the battles between him and the Ferrari driver of the time, which of course was Mike Hawthorne, and the two characters, totally different. I mean, Sterling, just motor racing driven. I mean, he was just focused, didn't drink, uh, you have Mike Hawthorne, who is, is similar to what we would know as like a James Hunt type character, where Mike was a, a bit of a womanizer, a bit of a boozer. Um, but the, the, the passion for driving from both of them, absolutely amazing. We're lucky here for Sterling. We've got, uh, I think, all bar one of his vehicles here uh, sitting in the paddocks over there. So definitely worth coming down today uh, to take a look at uh, all the event. It's going to be brilliant. He was truly never one to be one-upped, was he? No, he wasn't. I mean, you know, again, it, that, that's that driven passion. Um, and, and again, if you look at his history, his, uh, the family, the original name was, by the way, um, Moses. And they changed the name from Moses to Moss for obvious reasons. But he went to a boarding school, and I think he, he learned the hard way. He learned the hard way. But you know, that, again, amazing. OK, well, we'll be here this morning, so hope you can join us. And I'm with Martin, who's got an open-top tourer car. Uh, Martin, it's a bit strange to me because the back is shaped like the bow of a boat. What's, uh, tell us about this car. Okay, so the, in the 1912-1913, one Monsieur Honoré Labaudet, uh, who was a principal uh, carrossier or bodybuilder in Paris, started producing this uh, boat-like shape on the backs of cars um, and the, it was a purely a folly it was a fashion thing it wasn't intended to have any practical purpose whatsoever so a, a number of expensive cars and it was la- it, they were expensive cars where the body was built onto the chassis had this design and it survived into the early 1920s and then petered out by the mid-1920s. OK, so uh, this car, what are the joys of owning a car like this? 
the, the joys are any any open touring car, uh, of course, especially of this period because um, it's unusual and it's uh, very different from a modern open touring car, and it requires that the driver really concentrates very hard on driving it. Yes. And how did you come to own this car? I came to own this car by getting, uh, by, um, it was a sort of given the heads up by a friend who knew that it was to be sold. And it was being sold by the previous owner because of a, of a health issue. And indeed, it, the previous two or three owners have all sold the car on because of health issues. Uh, and I had always wanted something as unusual as this. And the operative word here is unusual. It's very rare, very hard to find. So if somebody is offering you a car like this, um, then you jump at it. You don't hang about because it may be gone tomorrow and you may not see another one for, uh, ever or certainly for years. Apart from it being left-hand drive, yes. what are the disadvantages of owning such a car? Uh, there are no disadvantages if your mindset is such that you understand the limitations of a car that's almost 100 years old. So you don't take it on motorways or payage in France. You don't expect to get from A to B at all quickly. Um, you therefore, when I, myself and my wife are travelling in France, we take the, the B roads and the C roads and we travel potter along and then Lo and behold, it's lunchtime and there's a two-hour lunch and then another 50, 60 miles and we've reached our, our Chambordot. And you travel in that kind of a, a manner. You don't expect to just tear about in it. Okay, yes. Lovely. Well, uh, Martin's such a nice car. And uh, aren't you lucky to own such a car? I, I am lucky. Um, but then the number of times I have missed the opportunity to buy a really nice car for one reason or another... Uh, makes it all the more satisfactory that I was able to just jump in and acquire it. And I realise now, Martin, we haven't explained to our listeners the, the model and type, I don't think. OK, so we are talking about a Delage. Delage was a, a famous uh, French make, a very high-value high product. He was racing his cars here at Brooklands and won races in the early 20s here at Brooklands. And so this car is the sort of car that a young man would buy uh, who identified with the successes, the racing successes of Delage. And he would have seen it very much as a sort of a folly because it's not a car to go to Sainsbury's or take the kids to Scouts or whatever. It was very much a sunny, bright, lovely day like this and you'd go for the picnic or down to the down to the harbour for your boat, to see your boat, to work on your boat, whatever. So it is to, yes, it's a Delage DI 1923, which makes it 98 years old. Fantastic. Martin, how interesting. Thank you so much. Pleasure, sir. Pleasure. I'm now talking to Tony Green, who's brought a very nice 1950 Aston Martin DB2 with us. Uh, Tony, tell me a bit about it. Well, it was built in 1950. It was one of three that were, was built for, um, or to race in the uh, 1950 Le Mans. Um, unfortunately, this one uh, never made it 
because it was taken down by uh, Jack Furman, who uh, rolled it, unfortunately, into a ditch on the way down. Uh, it was customary then to take the vehicles uh, down by road to run the engines in. But the, so this one was, unfortunately, couldn't compete. Um, it came back, uh, was repaired, uh, then became a uh, test car for an press car. Uh, for demonstration purposes and it was first I think raced by um, I'm trying to think now who it was uh, it was Eric Thompson I believe at Silverstone and then I know George Abacasas uh, drove it at Chelsea Walsh uh, Sterling Moss then later in the year along with Lance Macklin uh, competed on the Daily Express Tour of Britain and they won it and that's all the reason why the car is here today Excellent. And I can see it's got a sort of safety frame built into it, so it's a proper race car. Oh, yes, yes. Um, it won at Goodwood in 2018, uh, driven by the works uh, Aston driver um, uh, Darren Turner. Um, it had a very good year in, in 2018. Um, I finished second at Silverstone and second in class at the Castlecombe Classic. So it had two seconds. We won the second team award as well. So, Hannah, uh, so three seconds and a first. Excellent. So it's, uh, you're still racing with it today occasionally? Yes, I mean, it's, it hasn't done anything for, in race-wise for th- since 2018 at the moment because obviously with COVID to put paid to most of the racing and uh, uh, unfortunately with, I've got arthritis in my shoulder badly now and that doesn't go very well with no power steering. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. But it's still really lovely to see this car. It's a lovely model and I'm so glad it could be here with us today. Yes, well, that's, you know, we're looking forward to the day. It's um, going to be good fun. It's a very great privilege to be able to actually not only sit in this car and uh, a grateful thanks to the owner of Mr Justin Kennedy for uh, allowing me to sit in that special seat. Excellent. Well, you're certainly in good company today. Thank you very much, Tony. You're welcome. So it's Brooklyn's radio. We are live from the Sterling Moss Tribute Day, and I have got the man of the moment with me here at uh, uh, with me today. I've got uh, Keith Barry. Now, Keith, you are MC and uh, commentator here at Brooklyn's. Yes, indeed, that is my job on the big event days. <laughs> <laughs> and tell me, how long have you been doing it for? I've been doing it approximately 20 years. 20 years. So you have seen some events take place here. I've seen some changes, certainly over time. Some magnificent events, including the centenary in, in 2007, uh, motorcycle centenary, and just about every car and motorcycle day you could come across. And yourself, are you an F1 fan or a classic car fan? What's your history? I, at the age of two, I was taken to the zoo. Okay. And I didn't get any further than the car park because I kept looking at all the cars. So the zoo was considered a bit of a waste of time. And thereafter, <laughs> I got dragged along to race circuits, which seemed to suit me quite perfectly. And how did you get into commentary here then? Uh, really by accident. There was no one in the early days commentating here. We needed an announcement and nobody was prepared to make it. So I said, well, I'll do it. You're the man. You're Uh, the man. So I've been doing it more or less ever since. So your knowledge of classic cars is good? Or have you picked it up as you've gone along? How's it all worked? I think I have a knowledge from a very early age. Okay. I was one of those annoying kids who could identify cars by their engine sound. And over time, doing this kind of thing, and I do other events like the London, the Brighton Classic and Kit Car Run. So I've had to learn a lot. And now I have a large 
technical library as well, which I can refer to before events. And have you ever driven uh, cars yourself or not? Yes, I have. I've been through the usual uh, number of classic cars and indeed the expense that goes with them, which is <laughs> so usually disproportionate to the fun you totally, derive from. Totally, totally. <laughs> uh, what's been your favourite cars? Um, here today, yep. I would say the Maserati. Okay. I think that put on a stunning display, looked beautiful. Um, if I had a favourite car, depending on the era, I think an Alfa Romeo HC or I fancy a Gordon Keeble. That's I don't even field, know what that is. That is a real left field <laughs> choice for a lot of people. Corvette engines, okay. uh, small manufacturer, but just one of those quintessential 60s coupes. Uh, so tell us about Brooklyn's Museum and the sort of events that go on through the year. What are the highlights through a year here? Well, what normally happens, obviously, um, BC, before COVID, is we used to spread the events throughout the year. Yep. Now, what's happened this year, since we've all been released, we're trying to compress it all into the shortest possible time before the snow comes down upon us. Right. So we get the whole run of them from minis, where we can fit a lot on site, American cars, which we had last week. We have auto jumbles. We have Italian car days. Uh, we have emergency services days as well, which okay. I think you guys have been along to yes, we have before, been. which are fantastic, particularly for kids, because obviously classic cars are seen to some people as an old man's or an old lady's sport. What we're trying to do is bring younger people in. So the boys and girls who've got... The modified cars get a chance to come in, or those interested in American cars get a chance to come in. So there's, there's those kind of things which are under consideration. So we are always relevant, because we're telling stories of innovation, engineering, overcoming all the challenges that things throw at you. And to be able to do that, we need people who are doing that themselves, and we need to show them that we are relevant to what they do and I, th- I think we're winning on that Scott. Well, I would agree with you I, mean, I was looking at the McLaren exhibition earlier and it very much related to that and why McLaren were here was exactly that reason that they said that is a history and the heritage of Brooklyn's itself yeah absolutely and you look at the people who raced here you know they were very brave they were sitting in cars with no safety belts no airbags no, no brakes on the front for most yep. of the racing period and Sometimes they were quite small. If you look at someone like Kate Petrie, she was she was about four foot ten. Right. She was driving a huge, great car. She was winning with it. Uh, she was very, very fast. I've got to give her that. And um, you know, she was just a quintessential racing driver in many ways, sort of almost a female version of a Schumacher or a Hunt of a day. And then you had like John Cobb who yep. was exactly the opposite, very tall fellow, yep. you know, sitting in this mighty Napier Railton that sits there, an aero engine special. Amazing. A very expensive aero engine special, <laughs> but an aero engine special. In effect, a purpose-built racing car. Uh, so today is all about uh, the amazing Sterling Moss. Did you ever get to meet Sterling at all? Or did you? I have met him, uh-huh. yes. I've, I've met him on a couple of occasions, and... Uh, He's an absolutely fabulous... Oh, he was an absolutely fabulous guy. I think he had time for so many people. And he would give them something they would remember the rest of their life. But if you look at how he was as a racing driver, he's always seen as this uh, quite... Not cavalier guy, but he had a lot of charisma and panache. And, but underneath it was just rock-solid research. Yeah. When he won the Millie Miller in 55... Yeah, he'd driven that circuit so many times. They had notes on everything. 
they could go over a, a humpback bridge knowing there wasn't going to be a bend around a corner which would kill them. So they could go over it on full track. Yeah. And that's unusual these days. Yes, so indeed. Like, yes. Um, you know, they were the first to do it. And that's why we've all got pace notes now when we're doing rally. Interesting in those early days because the, the comparison between him and Mike Hawthorne back in the race because completely different characters. Yes, they are. I mean, Mike Hawthorne was, uh, I think, formed by this congenital health problem that he had. Right. He always knew he was going to die a relatively young man. And he fitted his whole life into it. And I think that's what gave him the will to win. But we know he, you know, there's certain makes of cars he didn't get on with. And that may be why he was racing on the hog's back. And that may be why he came to grief there. We still, we really don't know. I and mean, there's lots of theories. But he was, he was a very mercurial character. Yes. And I, and I think motor racing is full of people like that. The heroes, that they're unusual, they're eccentric. But they can only be, otherwise they will never get to where... No, absolutely. absolutely. You you cannot be run-of-the-mill and succeed at that. You've got to be driven, and you've got to have that little bit of stardust sprinkled on you that just marks you out from everybody else. So, if you look back over the generations, if you had to pick one driver as your favourite of all time, who would you choose? That's that's going to be a difficult one. <laughs> now, given that I was born in the late 50s and grew up in the James Hunt era, yes. that would be one. If I had to pick probably the quintessential racing driver for me, it would be Kay Petrie. I okay. thought she was the most amazing racing driver, and she really had it all. She was a fantastic driver. She was very quick. She was very good-looking. That never hurt any racing driver, <laughs> whether it was Kay Petrie or James Hunt, does it? And, and she just had this sportsmanship about her that was quintessential of the era. There was something about that woman that was just, you know, motor racing personified, in my opinion. So it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Keith. What's happening for the rest of the afternoon for you? Well, we've got another hour and 20 minutes of demonstration, so I'm going to let them do that. (laughs) I'm going to have some time off. Absolutely. And uh, then come back on and say all the thank yous and uh, usher you all out a little later on. And uh, what's the next major event here at Brooklyn? Next major event is in two weeks' time. We have Emergency Services Day. Okay, that'll be So for those of you who like fire engines, police guards, ambulance... Going usually going quickly, loads of noise, lots of kids playing with lots of buttons that make tons of noise, then do come down and, and see that. There will also be demonstrations, so you'll see the police showing what they do when they do things like stop, you know, stopping a car and, and searching it or arresting somebody. We usually get some of the search dogs down, so they'll be doing their bit. So it'll be a great event. And then the week after you've got Mini Day, the week after you've got Italian Car Day. It's so a packed schedule for us then. packed schedule. <laughs> so don't miss out. Just book all your Sundays out and come down. Keith, it's been a pleasure talking to you and well done for doing today. Thank, Thank you, you so very much. Cheers. <laughs> I'm now joined by Harvey, who's brought along a couple of very nice, very lovely Cooper 1958 T45s. Can you tell us a bit about them? Uh, yeah, the... Uh, the car was one of a uh, one of a few Rob Walker Coopers. Uh, this was a uh, the T51 uh, next to us is the uh, sister chassis. And these two cars raced together in, in 59. But this was this this was their earlier uh, earlier 58 car. It was raced first by Moss 
uh, at Aintree in 58, which he which he won. Um, uh, then two races later, it was to Monaco where it won the Grand Prix there with uh, with Trentignon, and it was the first rear-engine car to uh, to win at Monaco. Uh, it sort of competed through the uh, rest of the 58 season, doing a mix of. Uh, non-championship Formula 1 races with Moss, Formula 2 races with Moss and World Championship races with uh, with Trentignon. Uh, it was then exclusively Moss's car for the early part of 59 for Formula 1 and uh, sort of the all of uh, all of 59 for Formula 2. Excellent, because my colleague Dave and I, we were just saying before we came here that the Cooper uh, 1958, it's the sort of classic classic era formula one car yeah it was a it was a really interesting period of transition so um up up until really 57 everything was front-engined um and in 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 58 the coopers the coopers were there and they'd got bigger engines and they started winning so uh the uh the sister chassis t43 won the uh won the first uh grand prix in in 50 in 58 uh this this won the 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 second grand prix in um in 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 58 then on the on the faster circuits the uh the front engine cars had, had got a lot more horsepower you know these were uh 180 horsepower against things like 290 for the van wall um so on a uh, on a long straight, they didn't stand too much of a chance. But on little twisty circuits like Monaco, then they're up there. But then the following year, of course, they've got the two and a half liter engine, um, and that you know they were the quickest car on the grid. Um, so it, it was really a, a an interesting time of, of, of transition, and it's you know it, it, it helped um, shape modern motorsport, where now obviously everything has got got its engine at the back. Um, before this, everything had its engine at the front. Excellent. And what are the, what are the two cars doing now? Are they still are they just show cars now, or do they still drive? These uh, these, these these race. Uh, I've uh, I've had this car uh, for two years. I've spent uh, most of that time restoring it. I had my first race, Silverstone Classic, uh, a few weeks back. Um, so I've ra- I've raced it once so far. Hope hope to do a lot more next season. Excellent. So there's still a lot of life in them yet. I hope so, yes. Thank you very much indeed. Here we are, Brooklyn's Radio, at the special event at Brooklyn's Museum, the Sterling Moss Tribute Day. And there are lots of people here enjoying the sounds and the smells of the 1950s and 60s. Uh, Sterling Moss never raced here at Brooklyn's, but his father, Alfred, did on several occasions watched by the young Sterling Moss. And many of those cars that he drove are here today along the finishing straight going under the famous Members Bridge. And also there's a static display of Moss-era road cars and classic Jaguars for us to enjoy. As I say, the sights and the smells of the 1950s have been recreated here at Brooklyn's Museum and it's a fantastic atmosphere, uh, a truly remarkable event. And our interviewers are out gathering interviews with those who have brought their cars here for this special event today. 
And now for something a bit smaller than a car, we're looking at some go-karts. And Sterling Moss, he did have some history in driving go-karts. And I'm with Tony Keel now, who's uh, got an interesting connection to Sterling Moss. Can you tell me what that is, Tony? Right, uh, well, Sterling Moss um, lived... um, His father lived in Tring in Hertfordshire, and our family was originally from Tring as well. And my dad used... He was an engineer, and... um, they decided they were going to build carts right back in the early days of karting and Sterling Moss actually became a director of the company and so he drove the carts on numerous occasions and um, he was director of the company as well. Excellent and we've got a go-kart here that he drove in the Bahamas Grand Prix for go-karts back in 1960. That's right he did yeah he drove um, a keel kart in the Bahamas in 1960 which had um, two 125 Paul Tarko engines on it so they were an engine on each side of the chassis but um, they had to lock lock him lock the engines in one gear because they weren't allowed to um, use the gearboxes so unfortunately it didn't make the distance it didn't finish but yes he, he took two carts over there two keel carts one with the Paul Tarko engines and one with a um, aerial arrow 250 engine on it twin cylinder because there are a lot of uh, a lot of Formula One drivers back in the day, and we apologise for the background noise. There are a lot of cars here. Uh, a lot of Formula One drivers did drive go karts as well. Graham Hill, didn't he? Yes, yes. Graham Hill drove in the uh, first official kart race at Lake and Heath, um, which was ar- uh, arranged by a um, American um, Air Force officer called Mickey Flynn, and uh, that was the uh, first official kart race and. Uh, Graham Hill drove a Progress chassis at that meeting and there was also two of these carts entered, two keel carts, uh, one driven by my brother and one driven by Dick Tarrant Um, and um, I think they managed to finish second in the end and Graham Hill won. Excellent. And do these carts still race today? Sorry? Do the carts still race today? um, There's modern karting now and then there's historic karting which um, have got a race series and um, the, like I say there's the modern carts as well and then the, there's a historic kart club and karting legends who do demonstrations and, and various events like this as well I don't race this one because it's a bit too precious but, and it wouldn't really be competitive either because of the age of it but I, I bring it out on odd occasions and drive it when I can Excellent. Well, it's really great to see the carts and really fascinating to hear about uh, Sir Sterling's link to your family business. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Back in December 2012, Sir Sterling Moss visited Mercedes-Benz World to launch a new book. Brooklyn's Radio's Rupert Sarant spoke to him. We're here at Mercedes-Benz World. I'd like to welcome Sir Sterling Moss. Thank you. Uh, at the launch of your new book, which is 722, which is the, the number of your car that you won uh, the Millimillion. Right, that was 1955, and a lot of people have, have come round here who their fathers weren't even born then, so it's amazing how, how it goes right through you know, the ages. But uh, it was a fantastic event, which of course won't, can't be held now, it's too dangerous. Yes, I noticed. Well, they stopped the event, and they after De Portigo had his crash in '57. Exactly. He he had got the, uh, the film star was there with him, and she gave him a kiss at Rome, and it was called the kiss of death, uh, because he unfortunately died, had a 
It had a very bad uh, shunt out just after that, and uh, that was, it was terrible. I don't suppose she got many kisses after that one. No, exactly. <laughs> out of the, the, the... It was a very big team entered by Mercedes with 60 support staff, um, I think four SLRs, three SLs, and three 180 diesels, I think, as a complete team. Yes, well, as far as the actual rate, the main, you know, obviously the main contenders were the 300 SLRs. Uh, so I think they had three of those, didn't they? Yes, there was, uh, there was your, obviously yourself, uh, Fanjo, Kling and Herman, wasn't there? Oh, that's right, four, yes, you're right. And then, of course, in, in the gull wing, which is fantastic, uh, John Fitch, the American, they invited over, and he, and he I think, did an extremely fine, a good job in the, in the SL. Was it, wasn't it John Fitch's idea that you should have a co-driver? Well, it was his idea that one should have not only a co-driver, but would have the same thing as we bought, which we call a, to- a toilet roll, with, it, with the whole course is in, in his, his own hand, shows what the circuit was like. The thing you've got to remember, it took two days to do one lap for practice. So the only, only time we could practice was in between, because I was racing every week. And so as soon as the race, wherever it happened to be, was finished, whether it was in Belgium or Holland or wherever, we'd go straight back down, down to the, the Brescia and then do two, two, two days hard driving. It's 500 miles a day uh, before we got what, even one practice lap in. Good grief. That was very impressive. But I, no- I noticed that um, on the recce, I think you were the only pair who had an SLR. You had the SLR prototype. Well, we did quite a few, well, as many laps as we could. Um, obviously, it was only one a week. And we did. We certainly did a lap in the SLR. We also did a lap in the Galwing, and I think we did it probably in my own 220 Mercedes. That's the 220 after the race. You drove back to Stuttgart. I think it was a modified 220, wasn't it, for the team drivers? Um, yeah, it was, I think, what they call an S, S by now. And, uh, yeah, well, uh, we were f- so elated with this win. Uh, we had, you know, all, all the rejoicing and everything at Brescia. And then it, it, it knocked off about, say, 8 or 9 o'clock. And I thought, well, might as well go back to the factory because they obviously want to see us there. So drove through the night and got back there. This is after 10, hour, 10 hours and a bit flat-out racing across Italy. Yes, but, uh, but Fangio, I think, I'm, I can't remember to, uh, exactly, but I think Fangio gave me a, a little pill, you know, probably Dexedrine or something, because uh, obviously it was, it, today it would be considered dope, I suppose, but it wasn't then, we weren't doped. Uh, but we had this thing which uh, helped keep, keep awake. It used it, I used it mostly in rallies, actually. I did. I, I remember that uh, Fanjo was always. You talked about him in the past of having a magic pill. Yeah, that, well, that was it. <laughs> did you go to the team celebrations at the Hotel Vittoria after? I would think. I don't remember it, but I would think we certainly would have done. Yeah. I, I mean, we. we the, the thing is, we didn't try to get back to Germany that evening, so that we have really quite a lot of time. So I'm sure we had all all the enjoyment of you know. Having a great big um, bun fight after, if you like. <laughs> um, and Jenks's role was not just to navigate. I see that he was also there to sound the horn and flash the lights at the slower sort of uh, Izettas and Fiat 500s. Yeah, well, it, we, we, the car was actually coupled up. So that when you push the horn button, or there was a lever, I think, actually, but when you, when you did that, you also flashed the lights. 
so he didn't have two things to do. Um, and the, the, his main thing, of course, was to re read the instructions he got on this what we call this toilet roll thing. And it's amazing because he's looking down all the time. And you know, with the G loads in the in the vehicle, it's amazing that he that he didn't really throw up more often than he did. But I'm glad to say when he did. Uh, he did it the other way, not towards the driver, so <laughs> I would save that thing. But, uh, and he also lost his glasses at uh, one time because of, because of the air, but luckily he had been uh, thought about it and they had a spare pair in his pocket. That's very fortunate, otherwise it would have been a bit of a problem trying to read his toilet roll. The, I know that one of the drivers, it was Hans Hermann, took his mechanic, Eiger, or Eiger? Eiger, yeah. And... I would imagine that he would have been fairly terrified, but was he actually there as a mechanic or as a navigator? No, pure, I think he was there for companionship, frankly. It's, it's always nice to have somebody beside you, you know, really, rather than an empty seat. Um, he was certainly a competent mechanic. Now, they did not have, I don't think they had the, uh, the, roller, the roller map that we had, so he had to just go and drive as well as he could or as well as he knew the road, which, of course, was not that well. Was it Jenks who actually invented the roller map, or was it Fitch? Because Fitch was a bit of an engineer, wasn't he? Fitch was... The idea came from John Fitch, as far as I know. And he obviously got it organised. It was... As a matter of fact, I've got a copy, because I'm selling replicas. It was made, it made in England, actually. Then, of course, it was loaded with, with the actual, um, you know, sort of roll, roll of paper that gave, gave the information out. I can see I'm getting the um, <laughs> I'm getting the hurry up call from your your PR here, um, and I will just have to thank you tremendously for your time today, um, and I'm very impressed with the wonderful collection that you have here. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. I'd like to thank Mercedes-Benz World, and of course, above all, Signature, for organising today's event so that we could speak to Sterling. Signature has a large number of items as memorabilia of Sterling's career, including the prints, of which I actually have one, of the 722 car, uh, the replica roller map, and, of course, some models of the SLR. Just before he heads out on the, to the track, I'm now joined by Paul, who's got a 1954 Connaught VPF 272. Tell me a bit about it, Paul. Hi. This was uh, Connaught's uh, development from the A-Type Grand Prix car. So they had some chassis left over when they moved to the B-Type Grand Prix car and converted those to sports cars. So two of these, the um, A-Type long chassis sports racers, uh, and this is the first of them. Excellent. And Sterling Moss drove this. Uh, he did. He drove it on two occasions, uh, first in class both times, uh, once in France and once at Alton Park. Uh, and as well as Moss, it was driven a lot by Les Leston, uh, Archie Scott Brown at the Goodwood Nine Hours, uh, and also by Tony Brooks, who's here today, which is wonderful. Excellent. It's great to be joined by him. So how often does this car still get to race today? Uh, races five or six times a year. So next weekend, it's at the Goodwood Revival. So racing there next weekend. So no, it stays active. It's been a race car all its life. Excellent. And it's really, really good to see. So how does this car fit in? So uh, the engine's at the front. Was it one of the later cars to have a front-mounted engine? It was, yeah. So this was a 1954 car at a time when the engines were beginning to move to behind the driver. Uh, and also things like space frames, they were getting lighter. So this was really of its time. 
and it's good to see these really old style cars here as well now I think they're calling you to the track so I'll let you get your helmet on but thank you for joining me Paul it's a pleasure nice to see you and we're trackside at the moment Mark aren't we yes we're trackside and looking at some absolutely amazing machinery from from years gone by absolutely some fantastic um, cars running up this hill Tell me, do you know much about this um, this track that they're going to... Well, what we're beside is what they call the finishing straight. And this is where the races at Brooklands before World War II started and finished. So we're at the, we're at the um, roughly where they would start from, and they would go forward from here up the hill, and they would turn left onto the circuit, and that's them away, lapping, lapping the circuit at the, as fast as they could go. You can sort of feel it, can't you? You can feel the ghosts that were here, maybe, doing... Oh, my goodness, we can hear those cars as well. Fantastic. Yes. You get the sound and sights here, don't you? It's, it's really nice. No, I think what's nice about this place is that, is that it's not a static museum. Things, things come alive. The cars work, the, bike, the motorbikes work. Um, occasionally, we, one of the planes runs up. Um, so, really, all the collection lives I really love the way you've just described that. It's not a static museum. I love that. That's fantastic. I think that's very important that we that we do we do keep we do keep it alive so people can actually see see what goes on. Um, I mean, even on during the through, through the summer holidays, we've been doing vehicle demos on this finishing straight where we take out the car collection and the bike collection and we give them a run up so so people can actually see the, the sights and sounds of the cars and bikes that would have would have been a racing on this circuit before 1939 amazing and tell me mark because you love motorbikes i do i'm afraid it's my it's my passion it's been my, been my passion for the best part of 40 years no accidents um i couldn't possibly say <laughs> no, nothing, nothing serious actually i'm very lucky i've never broken a bone on a motorcycle i broke a little toe walking around the house but I've never broken any bones on the motorcycles. But I've fallen off a couple of times, two or three times. You need to wear those leathers. Yeah, leathers and protective gear and a very good crash helmet. It's most important. Absolutely. So whilst we let that engine go, um, tell me about your motorcycle. So you've bought one here today, haven't you? Tell me about that. Yes, I've come here today on one of my Royal Enfields. I've got three Royal Enfields, one 1938, one 2002 and one 2017. The one I've come on today is from 2002 and it was built in India but in India they were basically building the 1955 Royal Enfield from 1955 until about 2009 that's amazing that's just crazy it's a time warp motorbike from the, from the 1950s but built in 2002 amazing so what about parts and things like that do you have to can you get parts easily yes you can because they've made thousands and thousands of these bikes and they've exported them around the world. So, yeah, surprisingly, there's lots of parts available. And I use parts from the modern Enfields in my 1938 Enfield because they're all very similar. Oh, fantastic. So the, um, the structure and the design might have not changed that much then? Um, the, the look of them, the, the, the suspension, the brakes and everything, that's massively improved over the years. But internally, the engine is a still a, a four-stroke, single-cylinder, a traditional British-style bike, and um, there's very little that's changed between the 1938, the 1950s, and the 2002. That's fantastic. So I think I'm going to go and go and have a look at your bike, and uh, and then have a look and see where um, where it is, and um, and in, inform myself some more about it. 
Okay, well, I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to show, show you over to it at some time. Okay, let's go for it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Okay, you're very welcome. I'm now joined by Andy Smith with a car that my father-in-law will love. It's a 1963 MG BGS. Can you tell me a bit about it, Andy? It's an, MG, it's an FIA MGB. Okay, so the car um, was built third, third week of March 1963, exported to America, as many, many MGs were. And um, going way forward then to the late 80s, um, an event called the uh, Pirelli Classic Marathon came into, uh, into viewing. It really was the birth of classic rallying that we know today. Um, Ron Gammons of Brown and Gammons watched the first one in 1988 and then decided he was going to prepare cars for the 1989 event. So this car was repatriated from Elsinore in uh, Southern California uh, and completely rebuilt to um, the work specification for MGBs uh, and issued with its appropriate FIA papers in 1990. Um, it was used in standard format by Malcolm Gammons in the 89 uh, marathon, uh, but then rally legend Roger Clark with uh, Tony Mason of X. Top Gear fame, uh, took the car to seventh place in the 1990 marathon. Um, two years later, Roger, uh, Sir Sterling Moss, uh, with Zoe Heritage uh, on board as uh, navigator, uh, repeated that event and came seventh in the Mitsubishi Classic Marathon. So it's got a, a lot of very important early history to rallying. Um, Ron Gammon subsequently sold the car in uh, 1992. Uh, 93, I think, to Chris Hunt Cook, who became chairman of the Historic Rally Association. And Chris was very successful with it, um, winning many, many rallies, including Le Jog, Land's End to John O'Groats rally in 2007. So we've tried to keep the car as original as possible, uh, but it's still a very active vehicle, and uh, I use it in uh, smaller road trials uh, and rallies. Although I have actually done uh, Le Jog in it, the uh, Rally of the Test and the Monte Carlo Classique. So it's still a well-used car. Excellent. And it's really stood the test of time, hasn't it? Amazing. Um, MGB's very strong, providing they're looked after. They go on and on. And uh, I think it's a great testament. And it's a great testament with this event because um, Sterling drove an MGB, again prepared by Ron Gammons, in 1989. He drove uh, one in 1990. He switched to an Austin Healey in 91 and came back to this MGB uh, for the 92 event. So I think Sterling enjoyed pitting the little MGB against much more high-powered machinery, but he was certainly very successful in them. And MGs are real classics, aren't they? And it just goes to show the sort of versatility of Versa Sterling doing not just straight Formula One driving, but rally driving as well. Absolutely. I mean, his history in in rally driving is uh, portrayed in uh, Vic's book, uh, Sterling Moss Rally Driver. Uh, Of course, he won an Alpine Cup way back in the 50s uh, with the Alpine that we've got here today. Um, So it's no surprise that... Uh, when the opportunity came to shine in something like the Pirelli Classic Marathon, Sterling was there. And Sterling, that was such a fantastic event. I mean, oversubscribed, 
2,000 people applied, 120 were accepted, but there were some wonderful stars there. And uh, Roger Clark, I mentioned earlier, but Clay Regazzoni, uh, Paddy Hopkirk, of course, and um, Sir Sterling. Absolutely, and I can see you've got a, a Le Jog badge uh, on you today, so uh, yeah. still, li- still living the heritage there. Still living the heritage. Um, yeah, Le Jog's a pretty tough event. I've done three Le Jogs. Um, not as successful as Chris Hunt Cook, who won Le Jog in BGS, uh, as I said earlier, in 2007. Uh, but I think the, the, the message for anyone doing Le Jog is, actually, we got there, and that's, uh, that's the big thing. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you did, and thank you so much for being here today. It's been an absolute pleasure. What, a, what I have to say, what a wonderful occasion. And, uh, you know, the sun is shining. We've got all Sterling's machinery here. Wonderful crowd, fabulous marshals, friendly people, and um, a great, great motorsport event. Well done, Brooklyn's. Well, I certainly feel very lucky to be here as well. Thank you very much indeed, Andy. My pleasure. I'm just by the trackside and we're right by the E-type Jags and I have met a lovely lady here and she's just saying she's known as Classic Car Girl on Instagram, is that right? Yeah, that is that is correct. It's um, a personal hobby. I'm a massive classic car enthusiast. Fantastic. And so do you live locally? Yes, I'm not too far away. I'm in the Surrey area. Fantastic. So are you a regular to Brooklands? I am, and it's great to be back. Isn't it just that it's we're out and about and post-pandemic and just fantastic to be around? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I usually go for the New Year's event, and unfortunately that didn't happen this year, but just to hear the cars and see some amazing cars, which Sterling Moss drove, it's just really impressive. So tell me, where did your fascination with classic cars come from? Who inspired you? That's a good question. I went to Retromobile Week in Paris and I saw some amazing cars. I never really had an interest in classic cars, but just seeing them close up and personal and meeting the owners and getting more interested about the history, it's just something which has stuck. Um, I'm quite fortunate that my partner has a classic car collection, so, so that certainly helps. And since then, I've just been going to a number of events. So I'll be at Goodwood Revival next week. I was at Hampton Court um, the week the weekend before. Um, so it's great to see that more events are happening. And actually, there's more people from the younger generation getting more interested about these cars, particularly as they become rarer and rarer. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. We were talking to someone earlier about making sure that more younger people getting involved in this um, this experience and coming along and enjoying the cars as well. So we also were talking, just between Barry and myself, we were talking about you can't get that noise with an electric car. How do you feel about that? That's a controversial subject, isn't it? It is a bit. You don't have to answer. <laughs> My, me, personally, I mean, I'm a, a petrol head, so, so the smell... Uh, seeing the engine um, clearly people are thinking about the future of these cars and how they can probably keep them in the road for years to come but but me personally you know I'm petrol head through and through and so you said there's a few classic cars in your uh, with your partner have you got any you've got your eye on your own um, I am actually becoming more interested in the Jaguar XJS 
each year I see it, it just pulls on my heartstrings more and more. So potentially next year I might be on the lookout for one. Exciting. And then you can bring it here. I could, yes. That'd be amazing. Well, thank you so much. I didn't get your name, actually. What's your name? I'm going to keep it... Oh, you're going to keep it secret. Yeah, no, fair enough. It's Classic Car Girl. Perfect Classic Car Girl. I love it. Thank you so much for taking time to speak to us. Thank you. Now, this is an interview I've been looking forward to conducting since I got here. I have a fleet of 1957 van wall vehicles, and I'm joined by Peter now, who is the owner of one of them. Can you tell me about them, Peter? So, the, this particular car, uh, I wanted to, to build a replica of the only car that's ever, been, ever won a Grand Prix driven by two drivers. So 1957, at Aintree, Sterling Moss started in his car and it broke down. Um, Tony Brooks, who was also racing, he'd had an accident a few weeks beforehand and was quite badly injured. So he wasn't going quite so quickly. He came into the pits and handed it over to Sterling. Sterling then went on and, and won the Grand Prix. So it's the first car that's been won by two, two drivers. And I've always loved the shape of the, of the van wall and the fact that it was, uh, it was British and it came out and it, and it beat Ferrari in the day. And I thought what fun it would be to build a replica that I could use on the road. Excellent. And it is a classic piece of British engineering. Now, one thing I noticed when I was looking at it is you've got the exhaust right next to, right sort of behind the driver's left ear. That must be very noisy. It's good fun. <laughs> That's the fun of it. Yeah, you, you can now hear when it's, when it's only running on three cylinders quite easily, but otherwise it just makes such a beautiful noise. Excellent. And one of my favourite uh, vehicles here, I think, today that, uh, that is part of the fleet, even though you're not the owner of it, is the 1957 Van Wall Transporter. And it's a beautiful vehicle, and it was used to transport the, not the replica, but the original the, round. The, the, the two, two of them, there's two cars that can go in the back of the transporter, and that's the, the whole idea of bringing back the, the van wall name to, to motorsport, um, and having some original van walls and the original transporter. That's amazing, because the cars there, they're not necessarily roadworthy cars in that sense, so they have to be transported, and people don't necessarily think about the, the other side of it. Apart from this one. Apart from my one. <laughs> Apart from yours. Because um, what we did was we, uh, we took it through the IVA process. We have some clip-on mudguards, some clip-on lights. It's got a horn. Um, and uh, we took it through the IVA process. It's been MOT'd so I can drive it on the road. That is brilliant. I, I, am abs- <laughs> I absolutely love that. That is great. You do get some very strange looks. <laughs> but that's part of the fun. Absolutely, right. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for showing it to me, Peter. I look forward to seeing it on the road at some point. Come down to. Uh, we live just north of Goodwood, so you never know. Come and see it down there. Excellent, I shall. Thank you very much, Peter. Cheers. Thanks. Bye bye. Brooklyn's Radio is here at Brooklyn's Museum, and I'm delighted that, that I'm with Kate Ollie, part of the Brooklyn's Members Outreach Team. Hello, Kate. Hello. So tell me about the Brooklyn's Museum and how you could become a member. Well, it's a wonderful museum to come along to and support. Um, There's something really here for everybody, from young children, parents, grandparents, men, women. Um, I've been volunteering here for the last couple of years and would really recommend people come along and see for themselves. So if you wanted to come along to an event, you can join and become a member there and then. You can also go to our website, which is brooklandsmembers, all one word, .co.uk. We, um, we have various levels of membership. 
So for an individual member, it costs £47 a year. That allows you to come as often as you want, and we're open virtually every day of the year. There's then other levels of membership, so a couple, a family, up to our full club-level membership. The club-level membership costs £140 a year, but it is offers a vast range of, of extra benefits, including access to the um, wonderful um, bar and dining room here and a great chance to see some of Brooklyn's history. So, um, yeah, we have a range of events going on through the year and um, there should be something for everyone. And I imagine these events, you get advanced notification that these events are taking place. Yes, that's right. So if you're a member, you'll get a monthly magazine from us. You'll be on our email list. So you can hear about events, uh, talks, um, outings. So all the kind of things you would expect from being a, a member of such a varied and interesting museum as Brooklyn's. And on a day like today, it's just a wonderful thing to belong to. It is. I mean, we, we're having a beautiful, sunny September Sunday today. Um, very pleasant. And, of course, coming out of lockdown, people are very happy to be in at an event that's primarily outdoors. Uh, it's a very spacious site, um, and people are really wandering around, enjoying the cars, the museum in itself, and, of course, the aircraft, which, uh, which is... And Concorde, yeah. Yes, I believe you've got a full-size Concorde here from British Airways. We do. So it's one of the original Concords, which is here. It's restored and maintained by a wonderful team of volunteers, most of whom are ex-BA mechanics and engineers themselves. And, uh, yes, you can pay to go on a Concorde experience. Well, I think Brooklyn's Museum is one of the premier museums in the southeast. so becoming a member is a real benefit. Yes, I think it is. It's, um, it's a bit of a hidden gem. I think a lot of people who come here say that, that they had no idea what was actually here. Um, there was a wonderful TV program uh, on um, yesterday, yesterday TV channel, and that really brought Brooklyn's um, into the awareness of a lot of people who might not have known it. So, yes, a great museum, a bit of a hidden gem near Weybridge, so we're easily accessed from the M25 and also Weybridge Railway Station. So the general, the general web address is brooklynsmuseum.com, but if you want to become a member, the address once again is... brooklynsmembers.co.uk OK, Kate, thank you so much, and uh, let's hope you sign up a few people today. <laughs> thank you. And it's time really for us to say bye-bye. We've had a really great day. Uh, with me at the moment, we've got Leanne and we've got uh, Baz. Uh, this morning we had Dave and also we had Hugh. We've had a top team here. Uh, what's it been like for you, Leanne? I've really enjoyed it, actually, seeing and interacting with all the um, the team here. So it's been brilliant, the, uh, the volunteers and the drivers, and then also the spectators who have come super enthusiastic and loving, really loving Brooklands and loving what the museum is doing for them at the moment. And you've learned such a lot about racing cars, haven't you? I have learned loads that I didn't know about before, so I'm much more informed for next year. Such as? 
such as um well we've got the fantastic jaguars and we've got the fantastic uh, motorcycles we had a brilliant interview earlier with um the motorcyclist um team um and what else have we learned about barry Oh, you're handing it over to me now. That's very kind of you. I think it's been a fantastic day. It's been a brilliant tribute to Sterling Moss. I mean, just seeing literally every car he ever raced, going up that pit hill, hearing the screech of those cars, those engines. I mean, goodness knows what happens when we go electric because it's not going to be the same. And the smells and everything has just been a wonderful day. You've got to say, these guys at Brooklyn's Museum just do such a fantastic job. And and, and as Leanne said, talking to just the spectators here today, meeting a lady that calls herself... Classic car girl. Classic car girl. I mean, everyone is here. They are so enthusiastic about cars. Not necessarily petrol heads, just really enjoying the day. And what a beautiful sunny day it's been. And we've got to say special thanks to Graham and Mike at the studio end for holding everything together. Well done, chaps. So from me, Alan, Leanne and Barry, bye from Brooklyn's. See ya, bye. Brooklyn's Radio. Loving events in Surrey.